G'day, I'm Bob Carr, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to this ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by writer and journalist Robert Macklin. He began his career at the Courier-Mail, subsequently wrote for The Age and The Bulletin and was associate editor of the Canberra Times until 2003. He's the author of 28 books, including the biography of Kevin Rudd, four novels and a number of works of history. He's also written and directed documentary films in 33 countries in Asia and the South Pacific. He's won numerous literary prizes, including with Peter Thompson, the 2009 Blake Dawson Prize for Business Literature for the book The Big Fella, The Rise and Rise of BHP Bulletin. Today we're going to be discussing Robert's new book, Dragon and Kangaroo, Australia and China's Shared History from the Goldfields to the Present Day. Dragon and Kangaroo covers almost 200 years of relations between Australia and China and is arguably the most comprehensive and accessible work on the topic to date. Well, I welcome you to the program, Robert, and I might start by mentioning that um, your book covers almost 200 years of relations. Many of our listeners may not be aware that our relations with China go that far back. Tell us about the very first Chinese coming to Australia. What brought them here and how they came to be treated when they got here? The first uh, Chinese uh, that we know of to, uh, to be in Australia uh, were actually brought over by John MacArthur uh, as early as uh, the 1820s. Uh, we have uh, records of three of them on his properties. He had brought them out uh, to be uh, shepherds. Uh, I suspect that... Um, he felt that uh, the convicts, uh, which were, which he got for free, um, didn't work hard enough for uh, for MacArthur, uh, and he was involved. Um, this is not very well known, but he was involved uh, in the the drug running uh, that uh, of opium uh, that the British ran into into China, and that was his association with uh, the Chinese in the beginning, and he brought three out uh, to his properties and. Uh, we don't know exactly what became of them, but we do know that as uh, the movement to end um, the convict system uh, was arising, his family um, were the leaders of a push among the graziers to bring out coolies to take the place of uh, their free labour, which was the, the convicts, once uh, the, uh, the transportation was ceased. And so the first Chinese of, 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 the, of those shepherds came, up in about, came out in about 1848. When would, the, uh, when would they have started pushing for coolie labour? Uh, the moment that the British uh, government ended slavery. That's that was 1833. Uh, and uh, MacArthur, or the, 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 the graziers, could see the writing on the wall that the next thing would be transportation would go. And that was... So their focus was cheap labour. Cheap labour, totally, yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Um, they're, they're exporting wool to the world. It's part of Australia's uh, the first instance of globalisation in Australia and they needed to keep their costs down. <laughs> that was their way, mm. yes. yes. They were, they were not very uh, reputable uh, uh, group, the, uh, the early settlers. Um, uh, their first... Their first uh, uh, actions were to uh, basically eliminate uh, the Aboriginal people. Uh, having appropriated their land, they, they would want to uh, 
uh, enrich themselves um, with um, the smallest amount of expenditure on labour as possible. The Lambing Flat riots, how big do they figure in the 19th century history of Chinese and Australians? Um, how much of a trauma was it on both sides of the relationship? Bob, I, I don't like to use the word riot. Um, it has connotations of uh, spontaneity, uh, almost as though uh, the, the, uh, the rioters are responding to something mm. that uh, the Chinese might have done. Mm. Uh, they were, in fact, uh, very well organised. They were banded together, thousands of them banded together, first of all in uh, Bendigo, then Ballarat, uh, but the big ones, as you say, were in uh, Lamming Flat, which is now called Young. And um, they, they would have the German band playing and rousing their passions. Uh, they, and they would be playing uh, Rural Britannia. And they'd get together in their thousands and they would move in serried ranks upon the Chinese miners, who only ever were something like 15% of the mining groups in the, on these in southern uh, gold fields. And they did the most terrible things to them. I mean, uh, we don't know how many were killed, uh, but... Uh, certainly more than was reported at the time. But what they did was you know, rip out their pigtails by the roots and uh, in effect scalp them uh, and run them off, uh, shoot them into, into rivers and so on. It was a shocking thing. But in the argo of the day, it was a riot and in fact the governments of the day, particularly uh, people like Cowper, tended to um, take their lead from the rioters from the, from the racists, and uh, they then began to put poll taxes on the Chinese arrivals, starting in uh, New South Wales and then Victoria and so on, so that um, uh, for every Chinaman that, that, uh, that uh, arrived, they had to pay something like £10 you know, to get in here. Over a period, the Chinese then tried to avoid this by, by going to South Australia and then walking across from, from uh, South Australia where they landed. The effect of those, of those riots, if, we'll, if we can call it that, I call them uprisings, basically, you, you can trace a, a direct line to the white Australia policy. It's really that simple. Riots, poll taxes, other measures by, of immigration restriction by the colonial governments, and then the white Australia po policy being the first legislation enacted by the, the, uh, the new Australian parliament. And both sides of the House uh, oh. were absolutely oh. in favour of it, yes. Looking at white Australia, the kindest thing you could say is that all white settler societies were restricting immigration from poor Asian countries around about the same time. Has it got any more gusto, any more red-blooded racism in the way it was expressed in Australia? In two ways, I think, uh, Bob. Uh, certainly in the, the death toll of the, of the Chinese uh, on the minefields, but also the, um, the longevity of it, you know, to go from basically 1870, 1880, that's when these great restrictions were put on, which was in effect white Australia, all the way through to the 1970s, 1980s, when other countries were, were, were pulling right back from that. We were left, I mean, Canada, for example, had uh, no problem in being able to uh, sign... Uh, agreements, friendship agreements with, uh, with uh, China in that period and we never could because they always implied as far as the government was concerned 
the capability or the capacity for the Chinese to, to migrate here. What would it have been like for a, a Chinese family existing, say, in interwar Australia? White Australia's in place, Chinese numbers are, are declining, they're no conceivable threat to anyone. Did they face an active racism or were they able to enjoy integration? How does the evidence play out on this question? It's very interesting that you should ask that, Bob, because it just so happened that I ran across a, a, a woman named Pamela Tan, who was born in, 18, in 1930 in Mildura, uh, and, and her father was uh, Chinese, her mother was, was part Chinese, um, but they, they married in Mildura, uh, came to Melbourne. Her whole, and she tells the story, of her whole, um, of her first 20 years, of, of racism that was so painful to her that um, she wanted to become Chinese, she wanted to go to China, she just couldn't bear any more of it. And when in 1950, Mao had taken over and the, the new, another new China uh, came, came about, she just up and left and, and, and volunteered uh, to be one of the new Chinese in the, her story that then makes up a good deal of uh, the 50s to the 80s in my coverage of the, of the, of the history just show, goes to show you how painful it was for every Chinese person in Australia at that time. What happened to her? What was her... I, I, I feel a sense of dread at this story um, because I know how it happened, how it played out in the Soviet Union with former Russians going back there with a burst of idealism. Um, starvation of China under the during the Mao years. Everyone felt it, everyone lived with it. What happened to her? Well actually uh, she did go um, through all of, all of the problems uh, that uh, the other Chinese uh, did in Cultural Revolution and so on and um, uh, she married a Communist Party member and, um, and finally in the 1980s um, she was actually able uh, to come back to Australia, and it was a, in one sense, it was a wonderful way to end her story because she was a, she got a job at the ANU, and um, she did she she's still alive. She's eighty seven years old now, and a wonderful person. But her husband, um, he had a depression in China, uh, and you couldn't speak about depression uh, in China at that time. And when he got to Australia, he just simply couldn't fit, fit in at all, and uh, he committed suicide. But uh, she has been able to bring up her two little boys to be very splendid uh, citizens of our country. It's a great story um, and very heartening. Uh, if you think from the Australian angle, it confirms our country did rise above the awful racism that made a life here painful. Finally, after, finally, yeah. yes, after yeah. after all those years, yeah. um, I don't know that we've uh, thrown it off totally, Bob. I frankly think that uh, there is an underlying racism in many of our attitudes towards China and the Chinese, and I see it uh, particularly in when I'm in Canberra. I see it, see it in the, in the Defence Department where the uh, where China um, is is the, in regional terms, is seen as the threat against which we should arm ourselves. 
and that is uh, one of the driving forces of, uh, of, of defence's motivation. I find um, it quite depressing to contemplate how Australia-China relations might be going. It's as if the great goal of Whitlam and Fraser and of other Prime Ministers is now being relegated. The notion that we could have a relationship with, with China like we would have with any other great power. And I, I acknowledge quickly that there are faults on the Chinese side. They do present us with a one-party system, fundamentally different from our own, and it's not becoming more liberal. And they do things like um, arresting lawyers or detaining dissidents. But on the other hand, I tend to think there is a built-in prejudice in the Australian psychology against the notion of some Asian empire to our north. And we can't quite break through the barriers of language and culture and start engaging with the Chinese, fulfilling the Whitlam notion. I remember, I can imagine Whitlam saying it with, with these special inflections, we want to have a relationship with China like that, comparable to that which we have with other great powers. And if you look at the tilt against China in the last six months mm. especially, it seems it's proving too hard for Australia. Mm. Um, I, I take a slightly different, uh, uh, slightly more optimistic view, Bob, because of all the study that I've done, because of uh, mm. the, the manner in which I've had to go through the 200 years, I find that um, we have... Um, we go backwards and forwards. We, we wave between, between uh, acceptance and rejection. Uh, and we just happen to be at this stage in one of the rejection periods. But I think that, uh, in a sense, history is on our side uh, because, um, I mean, we now have a million Chinese uh, in Australia. We have, uh, people, we, we have young people uh, coming uh, overwhelmingly uh, involved in our in our universities and our schools. Um, and I, I, I have the belief that uh, young Australia um, is um, more open to the possibility of seeing our country as uh, an Asian Pacific nation, that our geography is catching up with our history. Do you think America will let us? Because I think in events in the last couple of years, it's clear that America has become panicked I think even from their point of view unnecessarily, by the prospect that China is somehow taking over Australia or becoming too influential in Australia. I, I, I think Americans who, who get anxious about this are being very foolish because Australians are far more comfortable with American values at their best than they'll ever be with those of a, a one-party state. But I think there is American pressure that can be assumed behind some of the statements from Australian leaders in the last six or 12 months? Uh, quite so. Uh, but anybody who makes a, um, a presumption about Trump's America is uh, taking a, a very big step into the dark. Um, I, don't, I, I think that uh, Trump is really not um, focused at all on that, that side of things. Uh, I mean, what we... He could be rather transactional when it comes to China. He could be. Uh, more than ideological. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, he... he, he if his uh, polling numbers get to be critical, he will do what um, many politicians, uh, national politicians do, is look for an outside source to, to, to pick a fight with and, uh, and have his people rally around the flag. And, of course, he can do that. His first, first uh, choice is North, North uh, Korea. But I really don't think that he would do that in, in terms of China because... Um, 
he is by nature a bully, and uh, North Korea could be bullied, perhaps, but China never could, and he would be aware of that. China, as uh, Xi Jinping says, is the big guy in the neighbourhood. Yeah, China's gone pa past the point where it would allow itself to be bullied. Uh, mm -hmm. Deng Xiaoping and uh, and treading softly, that's in the past. This Indeed. is a, this, this uh, and, and I think the the party congress, which we're about to witness, will absolutely confirm that uh, China is saying we're, we're now fulfilling uh, our re-emergence, the dream of our re-emergence. Now, to go back to the history of the relationship, 1949, the Chifley government was being voted out of power, just as Mao was taking power in Beijing. If Chifley had been re-elected as Prime Minister, or if he got back in 51, or under effort, if Labor got back in 54, would you have had a diplomatic relationship uh, struck up? And how close might it have been? Do you think Chifley would have done it if he got back in 49? Taking the His, lead from British, the British Labor government well, of Adelaide? That, that was really uh, remarkable because the British were very much in favour of, of recognition and they only delayed their recognition in 1949 uh, until after that election, which turned out to be the election that uh, the Conservatives won. Prior to that, Chifley's uh, cabinet was split, and I have to say that Evatt was, uh, was on, the, uh, on the wrong side. Evatt was, uh, was one who said, no, we don't want to recognise uh, uh, China. Um, but Chifley, if he'd had his way, I have no doubt would have done so, because he didn't want China to fall into the same um, uh, attitude of, of, um, of being uh, non-responsive to the rest of the world. You know, he wanted it didn't to... Didn't want it isolated. That's right. He, yeah. he didn't want it to be isolated. Uh, but Everett, I'm afraid, uh, um, in his strange and mystical manner, uh, decided that uh, China wasn't uh, for him. And um, it became... Then it simply became academic because um, the Menzies government was uh, virulently anti-communist, and um, and Menzies must have been in a terrible quandary because, as you know, he was totally uh, uh, British to his bootstraps, and yet he was being hauled the other way by the Americans. Uh, the Americans would, you know, were totally opposed to uh, recognition, and uh, at the time Menzies was trying to. Uh, negotiate the ANZUS Treaty. So, he, he, you know, he, he was just torn uh, between, these two, between these two poles and he chose to go with the Americans. What do you say about, about Whitlam? It, it's hard to get over the, the sheer inspired statesmanship of Whitlam as opposition leader, sending a telegram to Zhou Enlai, Peking, Peking, saying we'd like to send a delegation to see you. Um, it, lifts, it really does lift Whitlam out of the ordinary. A few opposition leaders would have taken a risk remotely comparable Indeed. to that. Yeah. The actual um, initiator was, of course, Mick Young, who had been to China you know, <coughs> as a trade unionist. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I think he had a very um, clear um, view of, um, of what could come from that. Um, and of course, at the same time, you had um, 
our first, uh, our first uh, ambassador uh, to China. Stephen Fitzgerald. Stephen Fitzgerald, yeah. uh, who very, has very kindly mm. done a cover note on my book. Uh, but, you know, he, he, could see the, he could see the great value of it as well. Yes, it was a most extraordinary, and I took absolute delight in writing that element of the, uh, of the story because uh, it represented the very first time in all those 200 years the genuine leadership of the two countries got together. And it just yeah. so happened that Whitlam wasn't the actual prime minister at the time, but he was done near soon to be. Uh, and here he was talking to Joe and Lai, and this was an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary event. And right, right through to Whitlam, um, not being overwhelmed by the encounter, because he was able, like a statesman, to explain to Zhou Enlai what the ANZUS Treaty was. Yes. Uh, and why it wasn't directed at China, how it came about, it wasn't directed at China. Um, and any, any foreign minister, I've been in this position as foreign minister, um, going to China needs that argument because it's likely to come up when the Chinese express that your Chinese counterpart sitting across facing you on the other table in the foreign ministry expresses his regret that Australia is still committed to Cold War alliances and all the rest and you interpret that as code that they don't like ANZUS and you explain uh, as Whitlam had to do hmm. that it wasn't directed, ANZUS wasn't directed at China. So I'm just, whatever else you say about Whitlam, as the years go by, for this initiative, he looks more and more statesmanlike. But I think in, in our work, and in ACRI's work, we, um, we've explored Malcolm Fraser, and Stephen Fitzgerald does that in his book, mm. his memoir, and Fraser's concept of China needing to be recruited to Australia and Japan and the United States to balance the then formidable power and the significant threat of the Soviet Union was also a distinctive statesman's view. Oh, was indeed. Absolutely, yes. Uh, but I think the, sh the sheer joy of the whole thing for me was um, the manner in which uh, the Whitlam uh, movement <laughs> flat-footed uh, Billy McMahon, you know, who absolutely he, uh, he looked so stupid, really. There hasn't been a humiliation like that in, in the history of Australian politics, there I really don't hasn't. think. Yeah. To, condemn, to condemn Whitlam for being, having been there and then to have it revealed that Henry Kissinger <laughs> was there right at the moment. <laughs> yes, I had a particular joy about that because uh, I had spent four years as a press secretary to Sir John McEwen. And uh, so it, it, it actually tickled my fancy as well. Hmm. Uh, McEwen was, and, and the National Party were at the forefront of getting Australian trading opportunities, so they were living with the contradiction that the welfare of Australian farmers benefited from the links with China, but we, we couldn't get out in front of the Americans and confer diplomatic recognition. We had to watch Canada, a rival wheat exporter, yes. do the same. Yes, yes. McEwen was, uh, he was an example of, um, in writ large actually, of uh, an attitude, uh, Australian's attitude to China, which I think is, was best expressed by, by, by Tony Abbott. In an, in, an, in an aside to uh, Angela, Angela Merkel, of mm. um, fear and greed. That was McEwen writ large mm. because uh, he regarded China as being actually a, such, a, such a, a rival, such a basically 
a potential enemy, a potential conqueror of our country, uh, that he, he railed against it uh, time and time again in the elections of uh, 1969 that, uh, that I accompanied him on. And yet at the same time, he, he, he fell over himself to, to sell as much wheat as possible to, to, to China. So it was fear and greed writ large. Yeah. Well, uh, last question. Morrison of Peking. Hmm. Um, what a fascinating character. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. What, what stood out for you about that personality and what he did as a journalist? You must have been f full of admiration for Oh, absolutely. What he pulled off. Yes, indeed, indeed. I mean, I had actually previously written his uh, biography. Uh, oh, you're the author of yeah, Morrison of... of China. Yeah. Cyril Pearl did uh, Morrison of Peking. I did Morrison of China. That's right. With, uh, yes, with my, yeah, my dear yeah. friend uh, Peter Thompson. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the story of Dragon and Kangaroo begins with my meeting um, a fellow named Morrison um, at, a, at a, um, a, a university party, an ANU party. And I'd, I'd recently reread uh, Cyril, Cyril Pearl's work and I was telling him how lucky he was to have a name like Morrison because uh, his namesake was, uh, was uh, you know, such a wonderful man. And I kept on telling him about this and he said, yes, I, I think I'd probably agree. He said, my name is Alistair Morrison. I am his son. You're kidding. <laughs> so uh, we became very good friends. And uh, another person whom I had known because I read his biography, uh, Kevin Rudd. I spoke to Kevin about uh, Alistair and he was... Uh, he was kind enough to do uh, a, a great gesture, which was to come with me and, and to meet him uh, on his deathbed. And it, it, it really enlivened uh, Alistair's uh, last So that was Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister? Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister. Oh, that's a nice, very nice gesture. Yes. Yeah. He was a great man for gestures, yeah. was Kevin. Yeah. And how do you assess having a sonologist as Prime Minister of Australia? Hmm. It didn't work that well, Bob. It didn't work that well. Why uh, is that? Why is that? Well, part of the reason uh, was uh, at the ANU, uh, when Kevin went through, uh, his, le his lecturers, uh, one of them in particular, uh, Pierre Rickmans, um, was very, very old, old school. He was, um, he, he was an old, um, you know, Cold War man, and, uh, and China was the enemy. Uh, and Kevin, for his thesis, he, he did a, the, the trial of a, of a, a dissident and, and, and that cemented in his mind an attitude towards uh, China that uh, he now, he still expresses. That's an interesting, very interesting perspective. Yes. Um, certainly, you, you couldn't, it, it's hard to identify the, the defence white paper during his years and uh, the challenge in his, his first prime ministerial visit. Yes. Um, the, the way Tibet was handled. It's hard to identify a distinctive shaping of China policy, isn't it? Oh, it is. In fact, it got so bad. I mean, that, there was a year of absolute, and as horribleness of mm. uh, Kevin's, I think it was 2009. 2009. Uh, to be fair, there were things in that beyond his control. Oh, there were. The, That's like true. The Chinelco yes. decision and... Uh, you know, and so mm. the two... Uh, the countries had to get together and uh, and organise a uh, a statement of, yep. of of friendship to try to get over it. Yep, yeah, indeed. And the Chinese seemed pretty good at that, at, at clearing the slate and starting the relationship afresh. Uh, Howard had that 
that same experience with Jiang Zemin. He did indeed. Robert, thanks for your contribution to Australia-China relations. I'm really looking forward to uh, reading it, um, just in this, in this encounter we've had. You've said, um, you've said things that indicate a distinctive approach from MacArthur, Morrison at Peking, the, the Lambing Flat um, riots, which you um, impose a different interpretation on. They were planned, they were calculated. And I also want to go back and uh, investigate fully that, that, that moment in 1949 when the Chifley cabinet was divided about the question of recognition of the new government um, in Peking, even though Chifley was running a Chifley cabinet was running an independent foreign policy when it came to independent Indonesia. Indeed, for example, doing quite brave things. But uh, thanks for your also for your relative optimism about the uh, relationship, seeing it in, in cyclical terms. Uh, I mean that's useful to bear in mind um, at a time when uh, it does appear Australia's tilted somewhat against China and and the possibilities of the relationship. Good luck with the book. I hope. I hope it gets the attention it deserves. Congratulations. What's the next book, by the way? I admire you struggling with a book myself. I admire the alacrity with which you turn them out. Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm presently working on a book uh, which deals with the frontier wars, uh, particularly in Queensland. Good luck. Good luck. Okay. Thank you very much. On both fronts, promoting the uh, uh, dragon and kangaroo and uh, writing the new one. Robert Macklin, great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Our next episode will feature leading Australian sinologist Colin McCarris. He will join ACRI's director, Professor Bob Carr, to discuss his book, Western Perspectives on the People's Republic of China, as well as recent developments in Australia-China relations. Find out more about ACRI's research and events on our website, australiachinarelations.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.